to another episode of How Do You Do Pod. All right, so we are so excited to have a dear friend of both of ours on the podcast today, Rabbi Chase Foster. Chase is the rabbi for Jewish Learning and Engagement at J-Hub, a Cleveland-based organization. Chase, welcome to How Do You Jew? Thank you so much, Samantha and Yael. I'm really excited to be with you. Awesome. So um, we just want to jump in and learn all about you. Um, can you tell us tell us your Jewish journey? What brought you here um, to your rabbinate, to the wonderful human that you are in general and into our lives? Wow. The wonderful human I am now. Have you been talking to my grandmother or something? It's been fantastic. Um, I actually hang out with your dog mostly. That's true. I've been true. hanging out with your grandmother. Uh, for those listening, I can <laughs> I can verify that Samantha has been hanging out with my dog. Um, so I'm born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I would say really my Jewish journey started with me as a little kid. My mom taught religious school as a means to help pay for our synagogue dues. My parents are both teachers and educators, and so it's not so easy to be able to afford synagogue. And so I, as a five or six-year-old, remember getting to synagogue on Sunday morning a half an hour early and staying a half an hour late uh, just because my mom was sitting up her classroom and dealing with the administration of running a religious school classroom. She actually, she still teaches religious school to this day, even though she's retired from her public school job. But so I just have all of these amazing memories as a child running around the synagogue mostly unsupervised when it wasn't during religious school. And so I've just always really felt comfortable in Jewish community, in Jewish spaces. Um, I spent years growing up at Goldman Union Camp Institute in Zionsville, which is the reform movement camp outside of Indianapolis. And uh, throughout my life, was a member of Nifty and a youth group at synagogue and was a madrich as a teaching assistant. And all of these moments were just me loving being a part of Jewish community and I wanted to be a part of that. I started thinking about the rabbinate specifically in high school. I actually remember, I have evidence, I wrote about it in an application for my avodah summer at camp before senior year of high school. And I got some really great advice from my rabbi, from my mentor, Rabbi Lewis Camerson in Cincinnati, to go experience the world, learn other things that aren't particularly that aren't Jewish, because you'll always learn the Jewish stuff, especially in rabbinical school, and that I'll be a more well-rounded human if I'm also learning whatever it is. And so I was a math and science nerd, and so I spent two and a half years at Purdue University learning civil engineering and physics and calculus and all those fun, interesting things. Are uh, they truly fun and interesting things, just to clarify? I mean, uh, just to clarify, to a point, to a point, I definitely found that that was not my passion. It was not where I wanted to end up. And so I made a big switch and ended up in psychology and working for the local shul t as a religious school teacher and running their youth group and was still working at camp through all those years and turned that after college into a job working for a synagogue and really it was just kind of like a people always think of clergy having like their call moments where like there was an aha moment i didn't have that for me it was just any in evolution of like it just makes so much sense for me to be deeply immersed in Jewish community and to be a leader in Jewish communities and in order to do that for me to become a deeply educated and thoughtful Jew through the process of becoming a rabbi. That's awesome and I think it's really interesting because the way you told your upbringing story so much of it is based in synagogues and camp and really Jewish communal institutions and the role that you play today operates in partnership with those kinds of spaces, but really in its own innovation space in the Jewish community. Can you talk a little bit about what your rabbinate looks like now? Yeah, so I, after I was ordained a few years ago, I worked in a congregation down in Houston, Texas, um, and was really excited when I got the opportunity to take this job working at J-Hub in Cleveland. J-Hub, as you, as you said, is an institution where funded through the Jewish Federation of Cleveland and the Jewish Education Center. Uh, and our mission is connecting interfaith couples and families to Jewish life, which for me was a very natural uh, next step for me doing engagement work and working with young adults and young couples. 
thing I didn't share about my personal story, but is deeply personal to the work that I do is that my dad is Christian, uh, you know, is on the church board and goes to church or, well, I guess we're in COVID. So goes to Zoom church or whatever twice a week. And uh, that's just an active part of my life and was still raised in a beautiful Jewish home and was lucky to be a part of a Jewish community where I was not othered, never felt othered. He never felt othered. He honestly has been to enough Shabbat services. I'm pretty positive he could lead Kiddush by himself at this point. Uh, and it's just a big part of my life. And so I really love the fact that I get to work and engage and uh, be with couples who are hopefully having that same kind of experience and get to be part of the process of helping those couples feel embraced and loved by the Jewish community. I have to say, Chase, that I did not know that about you, and this is a new, this is some new information <laughs> for me, and it's cool because I mean, you obviously know who I'm dating. You've met Dan. Yeah, um, lovely and- guy. Dan and I get along great. <laughs> Yes. We're all Team Dan on this podcast. <laughs> We're all on t- Team Dan. And this is part of what, I mean, I've I've been engaging with J-Hub even before I met Dan, before I dated someone that was not Jewish for the first time in my life. And I, I just love the work that you do and how it's all very inclusive. I love how inclusive it is. And I, I love learning that about you, Chase. I'm so, so excited. Of course, of course. Well, I, I don't necessarily, I mean, I don't have any tattoos on my forehead, little in the fact that, hi, I'm a rabbi and my dad's Christian. But like, it's not a thing that I necessarily hide, but it's a thing that I will say is grown into being a part of my work and a, a bigger part of my story, especially because I work with so many couples and, and young adults in this kind of a space where like it is so necessary for me to share that, to say like, I get it. I hear you. I know where you're coming from. I know what it's like to uh, celebrate, you know, to light the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. To light the Hanukkah, you know, three hours after I was with my dad's family while they were opening Christmas gifts. Yeah. And I mean, for us to be able to welcome, the, you know, my dad, you know, my aunt and my dad and that part of the family, like, the, you know, for them to be a part of some of those processes or, you know, during Passover, my dad to drive to go the couple hours to be with his family in Indianapolis for Easter. Like it just of, it was just a fact of my life. I love that. I mean, I told Dan that I, I would love to have a Christmas tree in the house as long as right next to it we'll have a menorah. And then he came up with the idea of putting um Magen David, mm-hmm. a star of David, David. Yeah. And as a tree topper instead of just a star. Oh Amazing. God. Well, yeah, <laughs> that, first me? of all, We're that's super cute. Things. Wait, that's will super you invite cute. me over? Yeah, Chase, you're invited. Thank you. Well, I was going to say, number one, I'm inviting myself. I wasn't even going to ask. That's very kind. That's very kind of me. Um, I was being polite. (laughs) But also, I think you know, number one, like you're not alone in that. Like there are so many people who, and look, honestly, I'm not going to lie. I growing up in America, like Christmas is is not so much the. Christian holiday that it, I mean, look, it is very much a Christian holiday, but there are so many people who for them, it is not about the birth of Jesus, Lord and Savior, Christ, etc. It is this holiday of being with family and gratitude and generosity and, you know, the special foods that you eat. Like it is very much like a lot of the Jewish holidays that we have ourselves of, you know, Hanukkah is this opportunity to give light into like the darkest time of the year and to spread light into our world. And this concept of gifts is new to Judaism, but is a lovely idea of ways for us to give to others in this time, in this season of giving. Like what, what is wrong with all of us wanting to be able to give more to those in need? And also not even to those in need, to sh- these like acts of kindness and love of giving gifts to family and friends. And twinkly lights. And I'm, I just have a lot of Christmas twinkly FOMO. lights. Um, we all need more of that in our lives. I mean, right now, like, I I love a good Christmas vibe. I have this very visceral memory of being in kindergarten, first grade. Um, I did not grow up in an interfaith family. And for some reason, I, well, not for some reason, for very obvious marketing reasons, I became obsessed with Christmas. So every time that I would draw a house, I would put all the different rooms in it and always there would be a Christmas tree. And only later did I learn that like my mom was deeply concerned about this, that I would draw these houses with 
20 different rooms and all the, like, there was a room with a slide and a room with this and there was always a Christmas tree because apparently oh my, my Christmas FOMO went super far back. And I remember um, though really having it, you know, ingrained in me that this is not your holiday, but you're welcome to enjoy it. And always being very open with my, um, you know, in college, none of my roommates were Jewish, my best friends weren't, and always being so excited to celebrate what was theirs and embrace and enjoy. And I, I know words to more carols than most people would think. Um, <laughs> uh, my family goes Christmas caroling. They're all musical. Can I come like, to that I grew, too? I grew up getting in the back of the minivan kind of a thing and we would go for three or four hours, one or two weeks before Christmas and we would go caroling. I know all of them. Oh my I God. love carols. When I was living in Israel, the first apartment that Noam and I had together, he came home one day and it was my first like December in Israel and I was having my Christmas FOMO all the more so. And he came home Yom and Silvestre. I was singing Silent Night while making cookies by myself. <laughs> somehow he's still here. So I'm not quite sure what. I want you to know that up until the moment that you said that you were singing Silent Night while making, while making cookies by yourself, I was going to say Mama Vinicor, she turned out okay. <laughs> And then this happened, and now I think I need to rethink that. It's, it's just all really I'm very thrown into question. But. I'm sad for you, but like I, I understand where you're going with it, and you know, look, it's just a, it's a fact of life, and this is nothing new for the Jewish people. You know, the ever dying Jewish people, we have been saying for generations, for millennia, that interfaith marriage and uh you know acculturation or assimilation or whatever worms you want to put on these things are going to be the end of the jewish people and guess what it hasn't yet all we do is we find ourselves at various moments in history surrounded by others and yes sometimes we adapt other new cultures and traditions into our jewish practices but also we still remain jewish and the jewish people have thrived for thousands of years even in the midst of all this Yep. Well, my, my experience is totally different. I mean, I grew up well, in Israel. Israeli. Yeah. Yeah. So well, no, but no also, even, well, but also even in Israel of like this, I, I think Israel is the real melting pot in terms of Jewish life, etc. I mean, America, we talk about being a melting pot. I think it's not the metaphor that works anymore, although it once was. In Israel, it's such a melting pot of all these different Jewish traditions and customs from Morocco and Yemen and Poland and Russia and Ethiopia and all of these places coming together into trying to figure out what it means for everyone to be Jewish together or Jewish near each other. And, you know, this idea of, you know, a Mizrahi marrying a, you know, a, uh, someone who left the Orthodox community or, or, you know, I don't know, you can, and we can think of all these permutations that happen in the Israel, in Israeli society all the time. And it's, Yes, it's different than that here, but like in the same ways, it's like you're still trying to fit. Israel is trying to figure out what its culture is. It's only been around for 75 years. Like well, it's a grow, it's a growing process. And I think part of what's so interesting is taking these again cultural elements and taking them all over the place. I mean, I know that I've seen Sukkot in Israel, um, where people will build their sukkah and use what I can only refer to as Christmas decorations. Uh, because that's you know what they see online, and it's something that you can decorate with and order it. And I know that. And they're not paper chains that fall apart at the first rain. Do you feel like that was a dig at my sukkah this year? No, I'm just saying that is a dig at all paper chains. What I used to do that as a little kid, but yeah, I no, love paper chains. They're so cute. They're easy, but like it rains once and they're gone. <laughs> well, Israelis don't have to worry about that because it doesn't rain on Sukkot. No, it always That's rains true. on Sukkot. It does, at least at It's least supposed the to. It's, it's just supposed to wait until after Chag. Okay. It if it rains, rains, if it rains before a Chag, it's a bad, you know, it's, uh, you can read the, Samanti, you read the Talmud enough. You'll go find and tell me all, tell us all about what it's like when it rains on the Chag. I'm, uh, that's where we get our highest ratings when I start quoting Talmud. Are you kidding? <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. Our Talmud expert here. Actually, it's nice. I learn something all the time from you. Thank you. I love it. Love so, Chase. Um, she is oh. a doctor, by the way. She is. And he's she a rabbi. She, oh my God! And look at look and at me. You're our pastry chef. I'm just, I'm just yeah, trying for yeah. some of your success to rub off on me. Oh <laughs> my goodness! And all I do is have I either I bake or my wife bakes, and then I show up at Samantha's place in her backyard, and like Yaya is gonna be here. Like, well, let's throw this trash out. <laughs> 
because whatever she's bringing is gonna be better. That is not so, true. No, I have no had, joke. I've we showed up at we showed up at Sukkot, and Sarah had made an okay version of my honey cake. She had simplified it a little bit, and then all of a sudden, who shows up with her own honey cake? But the professionally trained Yaya, and I'm like, this is trash. Uh, Why are we not eating everything? Both of yeah. them. I was just really happy. Same. I've I've, <laughs> ha- I've had Sarah's honey cake. It was amazing. It was good. It was amazing. Wait, she's not going to listen to this, is she? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we hope she will be. So, Sarah, we endorse you all over town. Sarah, I loved your honey cake. Uh, <laughs> I did too, honey. Please stay married to me. Thanks. <laughs> okay. All right, pivoting from there. Yeah, you were going to pivot. Yeah, I wanted great. to ask you, um, what, what, what's the biggest misconception about your job? I mean, what do you wish people knew? So the most common question I got when I was in rabbinical school, at least, when I would tell people I'm studying to be a rabbi, is, can you do a bris? Like, <laughs> like do you also become a moil? Wow, so, they just jump straight into it. <laughs> right? It's like, there's not like, oh, what does that mean? It's like, no, no, like, wait, literally, can you walk up with, you know, implementation and cut off a foreskin? Uh, the answer to that question is no, I cannot. I am not trained to do that. Most people who are or anyone who I would particularly use or recommend as someone would also be a medically trained doctor. Well, and they go through years of engineering. Is that not the same? <laughs> I'm just because I've been to them and seen how it works does not mean I actually want to use the tools. This is fair. not. This is not like installing drywall from watching HGTV or YouTube videos. <laughs> What oh. an apt comparison. And I can tell you that's not even hard from just watching videos because I am doing that right now. Yes, we'll get the updates on Yael's home reno project. Right. Right. Okay, so people thought that you were skilled in doing a bridge yeah, because well, you entered school. Yeah, and so like, yes, that's a little tongue-in-cheek, but also like a true story of the question I got asked most often. I think most people don't understand the breadth of the types of things that most rabbis do, and there are lots of different types of rabbis. There are rabbis who are specifically scholars. There are rabbis who are teachers, whether it's in day schools or in synagogue settings. There are rabbis who obviously are congregational rabbis and run synagogues or um, are on the clergy team at synagogues. And, you know, myself, I work for a nonprofit community institution doing like a specific type of job. And so one, there's not one kind of rabbi. We do all sorts of different things. And also I will say there are rabbis who work as counselors and social workers in whether Jewish 501c3s or other nonprofit or in for-profit institutions. The rabbis end up doing all sorts of kinds of things with the, with the skills that we Awesome. Um, it is, for me, I think a really just important that you understand that we, I don't know, I think clergy big picture are one of the last, what I would say are like a generalist, like in a world where we are expecting people to um, specialize more, where like if you have a heart problem, you want to go to cardiologists. You're not going to go see your general internist, your general doctor when you, at least once you know you have a heart problem. Very much rabbis have be, are this catch-all of we do pastoral care, we do life cycle, we do in some ways some counseling work, we also do a lot of teaching and we have to balance budgets and work with boards and deal with personalities and all sorts of various different skills. And I will say, look, in COVID times, I've had to learn how to do some mild video and sound editing, not a skill I ever learned before. And, you know, that's a new addition to my rabbinate in the last nine months. Do you want to help us with ours? Uh, no, I'm going to let you guys, just kidding. Uh, obviously, yes, I'll be right over. <laughs> with a mask on and no more than six feet away, and we'll wipe down the keyboard with a Clorox wipe between each use. Thank you for all of those caveats. It's much appreciated. No problem. So you touched on this, of course, sharing the story of um, your parents and your own upbringing. But in your work with interfaith couples specifically, is there anything that you can speak to about what inspires you in that work or what drives you um, as much as you are a generalist, at least in this iteration of your rabbinate, to have focused specifically in one area? Yeah, one uh, one thing that always, uh, for me, and this is true whether I was in congregational rabbinate or at my various positions that I had when I was in rabbi school, rabbinical school is I guess the official term, but I call it rabbi school, um, and now is very much just, I, I love the stories of people. As much as you want to imagine, like a Jew grows up in a loving 
caring community that is also warm and welcoming and they find another Jew who grew up in a warm and welcoming community and they married each other and have lots of Jewish babies and it is happily ever after. I don't think I know that. And even in the Jewish, Jewish couples that I know, I, my wife is Jewish and I'm in that relationship. Like our stories are so different in how we ended up, both of us, even as Jewish professionals. So for me, it is the amazing breadth of stories for people and their journeys into where they are. And one of the things that I've started doing is I do wedding planning workshops. You know, I had five couples last year and I'm working on putting that together for a second cohort this fall. You know, we're learning Jewish wedding rituals and even the, you know, the Lutheran partner of one of the, in one of the couples is like talking about how much they love the idea of a chuppah, of a, of a wedding canopy or finding like an important meaning in uh, ketubah language, in the wedding contract that they signed. And that's not just the Jews, that's also those who didn't have either a strong Jewish background or any Jewish background who are doing that. And so for me, like that inspires me so much. I think Judaism has a lot to offer to our world, to individuals, to Jews, to people who aren't Jewish, whether that's halakhically or just aren't Jewish, period. And yeah, I think that, you know, millennia old wisdom has a lot to offer our world and I, it's, I'm just blessed that it's part of my job to help kind of find ways to give that to the world. Wow. <laughs> We're just sitting here. I wish you could see our faces. We're both just looking at each other like, oh my God. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Making all these faces at each other. But that, I mean, that's beautiful. Well, Please. luckily this is a podcast, so you don't have to describe the faces in excruciating detail for no, everyone, really because otherwise, to, I'm just kidding. There have been several points where we felt the need to clarify, like, if only this was a visual medium, you would see some expressions. Well, and you would also see me sitting on the floor of my closet, because I care so much about the audio level of this, that I wanted to make sure that all of my dress shirts that I no longer wear because of COVID are dampening the echo of the room. Thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> it's okay. We're sitting um, in, an, in, a, in a basement, totally empty basement, just with two folding chairs and a folding table. It's actually probably really sad looking if one thought about this. <laughs> we're not allowed that to record sounds... at my house because word on the street is my dogs are not well behaved and would ruin the audio quality. 100% every it, literally if so first of all those of you who don't know because actually whatever episode this is Samantha for sure has talked about her dogs in every episode at least twice uh, <laughs> Nala so and well. Pebbles I know right <laughs> Nala and Pebbles are um needy <laughs> that's the word I will use they're very needy and that's coming from their best friend's dad they're very they're very yeah. loved yeah. and they know it it's fine and you know I love them very much yes. But if you don't give them attention for 12 seconds, they bark. They come seeking. That, that is accurate, <laughs> yes. Again, listeners, please follow us on Instagram at HowDoYouJewPod for pictures of my dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Also occasional also occasional content related to said podcast, but mostly it's just a podcast <laughs> or uh, Instagram feed of Samantha's dogs. They do have like Jewish, I mean, they have Hanukkah pajamas that match mine. So that feels like a photo that crosses, you know, my target demographics of so my dogs and our listeners. My dog has a... a chew toy that's a dreidel mine have that too except she they will eat not. it okay so my dog will not chew it oh no my dogs chewed it to the point where they no longer have it it's quite sad so um <laughs> <laughs> this is where it's like next question good luck making the smooth ever. good because luck making the smooth we, transition on that one everyone we went from such a beautiful conversation and everything that you said was so it was i just loved it um into dog talks <laughs> it always comes back to dog talk it's just where we thrive exactly <laughs> this is this is zone. a common occurrence this is true i i can i'm sure i can give a dog sermon on almost any topic <laughs> this sounds like a really hilarious jewish game that we can add as a later episode i will come back just to play that game with you guys i look forward to it we will have we will have you on <laughs> again the, just for that off game. the cuff dog drush <laughs> it can be like a dog we can do a dog torah mad lib mashup sometimes <laughs> 
sold. Awesome. Oh, Looking forward. Sorry, yeah, Elle, you were going to ask an actual question. No, it's fine. I'm enjoying this conversation. I'm hitting subscribe right now. <laughs> Just and giving it. a five-star review. <laughs> Rate, review, subscribe. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, Chase, you talked about what drives you um, with your work in, with interfaith couples. Um, I'm just wondering, since I am one of those couples, do you have any advice for couples that are starting out a Jewish journey together? Maybe interfaith couples? <laughs> maybe Daniel. Just, just, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> just maybe you. Um, it, I'm just saying I'm offering you free advice right here. I would never do this. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) Look, a few things. Number one, uh, J-Hub, while a lot of our work is specifically Cleveland, there are Jewish institutions that work and provide lots of resources for Jewish couples. So it's really amazing when people find us. We we go out into the public space, especially in Cleveland, and at least before COVID at farmers markets and stuff, trying to find other couples just like you. That's a lot of the work we do, especially in the summertime. But we uh, we have all sorts of things. And I think if I want to synthesize a lot of the work that we do, a couple things. Number one, it's important to have these important conversations about what's important to you on a values level and also on a uh, basic level of like foods and holidays and etc. And I think it's important to have those conversations early and often that by communicating, you become better communicators. And when you become better communicators, you're going to be able to figure out and how to handle any difficulties, any hard moments in your relationship. Uh, You know, we hear lots of people who have conversations about how do I teach my children about Christmas and also about Hanukkah and all these types of things? Well, you can have five different couples and five different responses on how that looks like. And, you know, what happened to my family wouldn't necessarily work in your situation and would, but and vice versa. I think the important thing is that you make opportunities to have these important conversations before you actually need to have the conversations. That if you're trying to make an important stressful decision while you're stressed in like the heat of the moment it's going to it's going to make it much harder whereas developing a rapport with one another to have these conversations over time so that when you really need to make a decision you have built a relationship and conversations on trust and respect and understanding each other's core values and where you come from and how to communicate with one another. And when you do that, you're going to be able to, I, I believe, get through any problem you encounter. I agree. It's a, it's a conversation we actually had, I think, um, at, closer to the, to the beginning of our relationship, which was probably faster than any other couple would have it just because it is an interfaith relationship and if I mean we are in our 30s and if this is going somewhere that's a conversation that we needed to have earlier on in the relationship and I needed to to explain how important it is to me to raise my kids Jewish but I am open-minded enough to have them raised also Christian and however he wants even though he's less he describes himself as more agnostic, but he grew up more, um, he grew up a uh, Seventh-day Adventist. So. Oh, so Shabbat's the same day. Exactly. You guys are good to go. I, it, okay. works, it, it works out really great. That, that feels very, <laughs> I, I like got a lucky. Good, yeah, good match. Yeah, and, I'm wondering, well, and, you know, all three of us are millennials, and I think in the circles that we travel in um, are very accepting and whoever you know we meet and who they love like we want to have these important conversations and come to a place of shared values um, but are are open in in ways that perhaps our parents generation not everyone might have been what do you say um, you know when families are encountering the child brings home um, a partner of a different faith um, how did those relationships get set up for success? Uh, I think it very much depends upon the person and their relationship with their parents, obviously. Like, like that's a big caveat of like, if you and your mom or you and your dad, whoever it is that you're having the conversation with, have a good relationship where you're able to share and communicate 
feelings and concerns in a regular way, like you're going to be able to have, uh, I think, a different conversation than, you know, if you're in a relationship where, I don't know, I imagine like you're a stereotypical, like 14 year old teenager who's like, how's your date? Fine. What'd you do? Went to school. What you learn stuff like, you know, like if you have like a real conversation as adults and people, I think you're able to get into very different conversations about what that looks like. I think another thing is that people are so stuck on this idea of Jewish continuity that how can I make sure that there is the next generation of Jews to thrive and survive and struggle in the same ways that, you know, previous generations did. And honestly, Jewish continuity does not particularly worry me too much. I think Judaism will be here. I don't think Judaism is going anywhere. And I think current generations, whether it's of teens and young adults, they love being Jewish. That's the thing that people forget about when they look at the Pew Report now from seven years or so ago, is that, yes, people, especially in the millennial demographic and that is being followed up in Gen Z and so on, are not affiliating with traditional Jewish institutions in the same way. But that is not to mean that they don't love being Jewish. They are proud Jews. Millennials are proud Jews who also many are choosing to fall in love with people or whether it choose or not, that's a different conversation. Don't really want to pick that apart, but are in long-term relationships with people who either don't have a strong Jewish background or don't have a Jewish background. I think now, yeah, yeah. that's also the reason we did this podcast because it's literally called, how do you Jew? Because we come from with understanding that people do in their own ways. And that could be so many different ways. And so much of it is a mindset shift. Like I recently um, received as part of part of my day job, um, a survey (laughs) about Jewish practice. And I was speaking with some colleagues of ours about how so much of what was listed there are markers of affiliation and engagement from another time. And then we see this amazing work that's coming out about what it means to be thriving Jewishly and that it might not be based on specific rituals, but of the ways that inform the decisions that we make and ways that we gather. And we see so many amazing organizations that really focus on these micro communities even before COVID pods became the cool kid thing to do, apparently, (laughs) um, that really focus on affiliating outside of traditional spaces because people are still searching for connection, but in a way that maybe isn't being met by um, some of our existing legacy organizations. Right, exactly. Well, and think about the legacy organizations in most cities and most synagogues and most JCCs and most federations fall into this category. I I don't want to put a number out there, but I will for sure feel confident enough to say that it is most. That most of them were founded 100 years ago or 150 years ago by our grandparents or great-grandparents. And they built institutions and built themselves up into thriving communities for our parents' generation and have not done enough iteration, have not done enough innovation to really figure out what it looks like to create a religious school or lifelong learning or lifelong engagement for people of a different generation, that the needs of nine-year-olds today is so significantly different than the needs of nine-year-olds from 50 years ago. And I know that there's a lot of efforts in the Jewish community, a lot of funding, a lot of grants, a lot of thinking, and I, you know, and I don't mean to be trite with the fact that I know so many synagogues who are thinking deeply about what this looks like. But in the end, like these institutions are in a lot of ways still kind of sort of stuck in doing the same thing because that's the way it's always been done. And when we really kind of open our mind to the types of places that are really bringing millennials in or really engaging Gen Z in the ways that it's happening, those institutions would look significantly different. And that is scary for institutions and for legacy institutions because, you know, people, especially of like our grandparents generation, don't necessarily want to fund those things. And our parents' generation are looking for comfort in their own way, and they still need those things. And what's really hard about those types of multi-generational communities is providing all of those important connection and touchstone ways and avenues and pathways and journeys and moments for people who need so many desperate things. 90-year-olds and 9-year-olds need very different things from the same staff from the same 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, from the same 25 hours of Shabbat. And that's not easy. 
And it takes a lot of thought, a lot of planning, a lot of iteration, a lot of failing forward in ways that not enough of our institutions, I think, are doing at least openly in a way for people to understand that they really are trying and really want to be able to do that for current and future generations. You said something that I really liked. You said, um, open our minds. You use those words, and that's exactly how I feel about this, that I, I feel that if I do raise my kids to accept another religion as well, not only Judaism, but also know that, I mean, hopefully, if, if I'm not married yet, but I mean, if their dad- I say, do you have any news you want to tell us? Yeah, no, yeah. no. <laughs> No. I know I haven't seen you since like Sukkot, so it's been a couple of months and I just, you know, which feels like three decades, I think, in COVID time. So it, it could have happened. So I don't know. Sad. I'm not wrong. Um, no, nothing new. <laughs> no new news here. But, Sorry, um, Dan, no pressure. But her sanding work upstairs is beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Her sanding work upstairs. She's putting her We're house together. The house. That's all. That's the only new news here. But I mean, I, I mean, we did have, a, I had a conversation with this with uh, one of my friends that is not willing, she, she lives here and she's not willing to date non-Jews. And which sure. is fine, I mean, I'm, I'm, I accept her opinion, but I also told her that the one thing I see about me dating Dan is that if we do end up raising kids together, then I feel like maybe my kids, I mean, I'm hoping that my kids will be more open-minded because they would learn to accept more than just their own, you know, just Judaism or just Christianity. They'll have both at home and hopefully they'll grow up open-minded enough to be accepting of other people that are different than them. And that's, that's what I want to give my kids. I want, I, hopefully I can raise my kids to be more accepting. Mine are going to be super close-minded. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hopefully they're not. Oh my God, um, not what I meant. No. Not what I meant. Um, well, no, so I mean, just I, in general, probs, but no. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's interesting. Like your, what? Samantha, your, your children will be very close-minded to the idea of cats. Like, <laughs> for example. That? everyone should be. Uh, no, I don't agree. Um, that's fine. You're wrong. But like, that's fine. You're wrong. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. I didn't mean to cut you off, Samantha. You're fine. No, what just, were you going to say? It's so interesting to me because like everything you're saying, I'm like, yes, like open mind. Like I, other than me sarcastically one second ago, I don't think anyone's going to come in and say like, I really hope my kids are super closed minded. Um, yeah. Other well, than no, again, myself I, I, of a minute ago. Um, so I will, I will, I will say like there are, there are different theories on like the pedagogy and how you teach teaching or how you express your values and how, how you actually teach those to people. Like there, there is a legitimate pathway that lots of people go through in Judaism and in other situations where like, they are very um, particularist, where they very much, Judaism is the way. That Judaism being the best way to be a best, the best person in the world. And there's also a lot to be said for learning about the beauty of so many cultures and so many other people uh, around the world and in our own lives and in our families, and also still being able to proudly say, I'm Jewish. I know that there are people who are Muslim and Hindu and various types of Christians and so on and so forth. And guess what? I'm Jewish and I love being Jewish and I love my rituals as weird as I think they are sometimes in the same way that I think Hindu rituals are different and weird to me, but also they're lovely and beautiful too. And I think that like there's beauty in being able to having, you know, there's a difference between an open mind and just being like, add whatever you want and just Jackson Pollocking everything. Like there's a, there's a difference between those things. I do want to just explain, I mean, me moving from Israel to here, um, change a lot of the things that I that I thought about myself also like when I was living in Israel honestly I was not open to dating someone that's not Jewish just because a lot of my environment in Israel was Jewish just naturally from living in Israel and where I was living but I'm not saying that I was closed-minded and I'm not saying that no, growing up not. with two Jewish parents means that you're closed-minded or something what no, I mean is not. just that having kids that grow up maybe with a Christian dad and a Jewish mom or vice versa, maybe, I mean, it opens up a natural conversation about someone different. Absolutely. Whereas yeah. maybe families that, ha that are both sides are Jewish, 
that conversation has to be done because the parents choose to do right. it. Yeah, that, no, that's what I, that's no. yeah, yeah, yeah. what I Oh, meant. for sure. Can I put <laughs> some like some slightly different language on that that I think kind of makes it a little bit even more clear? Like yes, we like to please. talk about so much about like our echo chambers or the bubbles in which we exist. Like how much of the world that I as an Ashkenazi, you know, white cisgendered, heteronormative male in Ohio, like how much of my bubble is like other white Jewish people who are also Ashkenazi, who like come from the same smaller version of a spectrum. Like that's a good chunk of my, uh, of my echo chamber in the bubble that I have. And I think there's something to be said too, when we engage, whether that's look it literally get, I didn't necessarily mean this, but it's kind of works is double like literally get engaged to others um you know if the, i don't know right <laughs> who choose to who who end up falling in love and choosing to marry whether it's christians or muslims or hindus or who or atheists or agnostics or others and nuns and what whatever category you want to put on or that same gender. but like Exactly. Or like any of those types of things that like brings a diversity of perspective and experience to the Jewish world and to our community that is so important. Like for me, when I am out there engaging other people, I very much think to myself, like I, I, I put in my own brain this idea of Selim Elohim, this idea of being created in God's image. And I, I believe deep in like my heart and my bones and my soul that like each person is and we are all different there is no other chase foster in this world okay maybe there are others who have the same name as me but are not you know whether it's physically different or emotionally different or spiritually different or have different interests or you know just a different hair color whatever that those types of things are that like I am unique in my own way and I my purpose on this earth is to find my own way to live my best life and by doing that and for me I have found most pleasure in helping other people find their own paths and living their best lives too and I really think that that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be exclusively putting ourselves into those same Jewish bubbles over and over and over again I love all of that. I think it's so beautiful and so resonant, and I feel like it leads so well into as a segue into our, my next question. Ooh, you can um, pay me later for that perfect segue. You're welcome. Um, so, Chase, what excites you about the Jewish future as you look at it today, and what challenges you or challenges do you see coming forward? So one thing that I find really exciting is um, – especially since May, since George Floyd's murder, um, I think there has been a huge shift in the mindset, yes, in American society and American culture, but also we're starting to really, for the first time, see a needle move in the Jewish community. Yes, in terms of racial justice, but also just in terms of a general understanding that the Jewish community in North America is not the white uh, Ashkin normative bubble that it is always assumed to be, you know, and yes, there can be argument as to whether Jews of color are 12 or 15% of the Jewish community that there was a recent study, I think like a week or two that Philly and some of their population studies showed that like, you know, I think it's like 100,000, or sorry, like 30,000 Jews of color in the greater Philly community. And forgive me if yeah, I misquote I that, that number. I'll, we'll put yeah. a link to that study you can, in the show you, notes. You can it's put a so link in, and forgive me if I'm misquoting numbers, but like, yeah, that's 30,000 Jews in a Jewish community who are not like, who don't look like me, who don't necessarily have the same background or same experience as me. And to me, like, that is so inspiring. Uh, one thing that I really love is uh, members of my team at J-Hub and also a lot of people we work with are not, don't have that same Ashkenazi uh, normative background, that same Ashkenazi background, uh, that I've done a lot of learning. I worked with a wedding couple a few weeks ago. He was raised Jewish. She's Hindu. And so in the process of them, they had separate ceremonies, a separate Hindu and a separate Jewish ceremony for their weddings. I did some learning about Hindu wedding ceremonies and like the values are the same and honestly some of the rituals are the same we have a chuppah in hindu or indian weddings have a mandap 
that we have this idea of circling seven times. Traditionally, the you know bride around the groom and people do three, three and one now or whatever iteration of that circling. And they have the same kind of idea of the couple circling around a fire in an Indian or a Hindu wedding. Like there are so many different ways that our different cultures and experiences express these deep, important moments and values in our lives and how we create ritual to really define the important moments of our lives. And I think it's really beautiful. And for me, I love like super inspired by the fact that the Jewish community is finally coming to a reckoning with the fact that we are a diverse community and we need to do a lot more to make sure that that diversity is seen and heard and felt in our boardrooms, on our bimas, in our institutions, in our in our participants, in our flyers, in our in every aspect of our work, we need to make sure that we are giving that equal representation to all those people, and then they are going to be continue to feel more and more welcomed into our communities. So that's like a thing that is super inspiring to me. Um, one thing, I, I don't know, I have two or three things that I think that are like our huge problems in the Jewish world. One is the fact that we are just now moving that needle and we could have been moving that needle five or 10 years ago, I think in a bigger way. Um, a thing that I think is really sad that I've noticed or experienced is I really think the Jewish community um, has been experiencing a narrowing of the term Zionism in the last five or 10 years. I really think that so many people and this division that we, you can you read enough in the news, I imagine both of you in at least in American Jewish media about, you know, the differences between Jewish community and the Israeli Jewish community and how they're moving further apart and all this discord and all that stuff. And I really think it comes down to the fact that we forgot about the diversity of Zionism, that if you know, we think about to a hundred years ago to the very first Zionists that we had people who believed in a binational state. We had people who believed that we should have taken Uganda and we shouldn't have waited for Israel. And these are all disparate views that are a part of this term Zionism. And now we are shrinking that term Zionism more and more and more. And we are pushing people outside of that tent and it is causing unnecessary hatred between Jews, I think. And I, th I really think that when it comes to our relationship with Israel and our relationship with each other, that we are not being understanding enough, we are not listening enough, we are not hearing enough, that we are driving unnecessarily a wedge between ourselves and not just between American Jews and Israeli Jews, but also between American Jews and the differences in opinions on what that relationship should or could look like. I really think that that is something that the Jewish community needs to reckon with very soon in order to make sure that we can bring back that wholeness or at least, you know, if we want to talk in APAC terms of this like bipartisan agreement on, you know, Israel's sovereignty and a strong relationship between Israel and America. Or if we want to think in a more liberal terms of what that looks like to be able to turn Israel into that just idea of a Jewish community living in our society today. And honestly, that's what's going to move the needle, I think, in terms of our community for us being helping to create uh, the world and the instances that will eventually create a peace in the Middle East and help to create a stronger and more just Israel. Love it. I love Didn't that. see that one coming, did you? No. But it, felt very, <laughs> but it feels very on brand for our cross-American Israeli podcast where, you know, I think both of us feel very at home in in dual spaces. We both lived in each other's worlds. We both hold both citizenships, but are also figuring out what are the, you know, just having been raised as Jews and engaged and committed and active Jews in separate countries, what are the um, things that we're each learning and unlearning by exploring the quote unquote other? Things that you are learning that there are other types of people in the world, things that you are unlearning how to uh, not just crowd to the front of a line and push past people. I have yet to learn that, but aspirational is key. I am looking forward to the day that I see you both standing in a long line. I will send you a picture and I will tell you that I'm very happy and sad for you at the same time. The next time, uh, well, knock on wood, but if there's ever a toilet paper shortage again, you will find me on any <laughs> line that will accept me. <laughs> I think I've become very American in, that, in, that, in those terms. I will She's hang like, out Yeah, Elle's like, I love lines. Are you kidding me? I am not looking forward to going back to Israel and finding out how American I am now. <laughs> it's super awkward. It is. It's all right. Oh my God. I'm gonna have to video to videotape the whole, the, my whole visit. 
I hope it comes soon. So, um, Chase, you were talking about um, about how all the different types of of couples and faith and interfaith and and all the inclusive part of of, uh, of your job. I wanted to ask you about uh, gay couples, and my question is because. My cousin moved here to Cleveland from Israel and sure. um, he, with his husband, they're married. Um, and they had to, the, I feel like my cousin, my cousin doesn't feel um, as close to Judaism anymore. Um, I think w over the years, uh, after him coming out of the closet, he sort of drifted further and further away when he was living in Israel. And when he came here, one of the first things I did with him is I brought him, well, back before COVID, but I brought him to one of the J-Hub events because I wanted him to understand that he doesn't have to be, to feel like he's further away from Judaism like he felt in Israel. Because I think, I don't know if it's true, if what I'm saying is true, and maybe, and maybe you as a rabbi can give me a different perspective, but I think in Israel it feels like there's, one way of being Jewish and that everyone is being Jewish in the same way. And I don't think that's really accepting for gay couples, for uh, interfaith couples. Sure. So that's, that was also part of my problem dating someone that's not Jewish. I was a little afraid of my friends' reactions, which I have to say surprised me. But I know some parts of my family that will not be accepting of it. And um, I went into it knowing that that's, that's going to be a, a thing. So, yeah, El, you pointed out a really important point in terms of how Israel is run. And it's based off of, it's a continuation of the Ottoman, what was called the millet system. And that idea is that each religious community controlled its own religious practice. And so the Muslims control the Muslim community and religious practice and Christians control Christians and Druze control Druze. And uh, as B David Ben-Gurion is in the creation of the state of Israel uh, in late 1947, early 1948, cut a deal with the Orthodox communities as a way to help create a greater consensus around the creation of the state of Israel by giving the Orthodox community full control over Jewish practice in the state of Israel. That is called in Hebrew, the Rabbanut, and that is uh, continuing to this day and honestly is the bane of the existence of many Israelis. That's the reason why so many Israelis choose to actually go get married in Cyprus rather than get married by the Rabbanut. They would rather get on a plane, fly to a different country to marry the person they love just because they don't want to deal with the ultra-Orthodox Rabbanut that controls everything. So, number one, you are kind of right that coming from an Israeli mindset, there's this idea in Israel that there's only one way to be Jewish. I will also say that there are hundreds of mostly small but thriving Jewish communities in Israel that are not Orthodox, that are what, in, at least in American terms, reform and conservative and reconstructionist, etc. And they are all over Israel in Moshavot, in large cities and small cities, and they are thriving and engaging Jews and people in all sorts of ways. Um, just most of the time that people hear about them in the news is often related to the Western Wall or other situations. And just look, the Orthodox Rabbanut doesn't really care for Reform Judaism or Conservative Judaism or really any other Judaism that is not their very specific, small understanding of Judaism. And so that's difficult. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of your cousin and, and LGBT inclusion, Look, it's Torah is Torah. Leviticus 18 does exist. It, I can't, I, I don't try to hide that. I would not hide that from anyone. I think that is very just, it's, it's lying to say like that type of a thing doesn't exist in Judaism. But I also believe that anyone gets to kind of sort of cherry pick the things that they love about religion. That's what we all sort of do. So if the idea of, and again, I could pick also, I could choose to pick apart the language of Leviticus 18 and its idea of a man lying with another man and we can have the, ham the Hebrew grammar type of conversation. It's not where I want to go with it. You know, if that is such an abomination, why do we choose to allow other abominations in our lives that we don't even worry about? People don't really worry so much about eating pig. That's also an abomination. Uh, Torah teaches that we should also you know, stone a child who doesn't listen to us. So I think that there are moments and we have things that exist in Torah that we don't love.
And for me, I come from a halachic standpoint of when I find those things that I try to minimize them and move them out of the way to prevent me from experiencing and to prevent those who, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a part of the LGBT community. I'm an ally or at least strive to be an ally. Um, that, uh, you know, for those that those types of ha- halachot, that those types of Jewish, you know, those Jewish laws that they, who they really affect to find ways for them to feel included and to feel love and to feel a part. It is my hope that LGBT couples do not feel othered in our spaces at J-Hub, and they don't feel othered in the vast majority of spaces, especially in American Jewish life. Uh, There are very prominent members of the Orthodox community who are LGBT. Uh, There are rabbis who are also trans. There are rabbis who are gay, who are lesbians, who are in all sorts of different types of relationships. Um, And that's across the spectrum. That's not just, oh, they're going to be reform or they're going to be conservative. There are really amazing rabbis who are teaching beautiful Torah, beautiful, loving, accepting Torah of ways of bringing people from the LGBT community back into Judaism in ways that had not been taught more than 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And I want to make sure that you find ways to make sure that members of the LGBT community who are Jewish can find ways to learn that Torah too, because that Torah exists as well. I love, yeah, just beautiful. Everything resonates. And um, I appreciate your candor in acknowledging and naming. There are problems. There are things that exist. We can't take them out of the canon, or at least those of us who, you know, have chosen to kind of take it as is, but we can create inclusive spaces, name our deficiencies and where there's room for growth and improvement and create a new Jewish canon that allows space for really people of every background um, and um, gives them gives them a home within. And obviously I'm still respectful for whoever chooses to Yes, get buried through the Rabbanut and do of course. Judaism Orthodox. I grew up in a in a half and half house, so my, my dad was a little bit more um, conserv- conservative. I would call it, but, but sure. like small C. Okay, small C conservative. Yeah, and my my dad, came, uh, my mom, excuse me, came from. Um, oh wait, I'm using the wrong terminology. You're doing great. Traditional. So my dad came from a traditional right, so house, and my mom, my mom came from a conservative, what you would say, Jewish conservative, right. American, so, yeah. conservative. American, excuse yeah. me, American conservative. Um, right. And so I grew up in a half and half house, but also when I, I mean, I did, I did mention this, I did get married um, through the Rabbanut. years and years ago, uh, back in 2011. I got married through the Rabbanut because there was no other way for me back then. My I have a few friends since then that have gotten married in Israel to someone Jewish and still chose not to do it through the Rabbanut. I'm pointing at myself because I'm one of those people um, that Noam and I, when we got married in Israel, we very intentionally, and we of course had the privilege that I'm also an American citizen. We had an option very easily to get married legally elsewhere. Um, and it was really important to us to get married in Israel, but to do it in a way that felt Jewishly authentic to who we are. So we actually had a um, our wedding in Israel. The ceremony was performed by um, Bina, by the secular yeshiva, or yeshivat chiloni. Um, so very much not under the auspices of the Rabbanut. And we did the technical part um, in the States, but it was important to us to have a Jewish wedding that was our form of Judaism and to not go through the Rabbanu. But you also can get recognized. We can, but we didn't want to. So my cousin and his husband flew to New York. They got married in New York and then they flew back to Israel and had a party for the family. Right. And, And so they were recognized by, I mean, they were recognized for tax pur- purposes right, because, and all yeah. of that right to being a, a, a um, a married couple a married couple yeah but they couldn't get married through right. the Rabbanu, which i also understand because it is the old mm-hmm. like old ways of judaism i guess i right. would yeah say describe yeah. it so many no and there are all sorts of uh, people who are choosing to get married by reform conservative rabbis etc in Israel and look it's not through the Rabbanut uh, they have to go through some of those loopholes that they can 
get the civil benefits of marriage. Um, but you know, it, there are ways, look, it's, it's, it, they are acts of civil protest to be able to do that in Israel. And theoretically, if they wanted to, those people could get thrown in jail. I don't think I know of anyone who actually has had that happen to them because I think that, yeah, like I could not imagine. And I think the idea is that generally the Israeli government understands that would not look very good for them. And if they wanted to create uh, a dumpster fire coming their direction from the American Jewish community, that is a fast way to do it. Um, you know, but, and But there yeah. is, I would say, I haven't heard, I also am not familiar with anyone being thrown in jail, but there's an organization that the name is escaping me at this moment, um, but I will find it and again, put it in the show notes that specifically works um, to empower couples to get married, couples who you know are eligible to be married by the Rabbanut, um, as well as whether it's interfaith couples or LGBTQ couples or couples for whatever reason um, who aren't able to or want to get married through the Rabbanut to have Jewish weddings in Israel. And then they've created this new kind of card because um, there are loopholes to get domestic partnership licenses if you weren't married through the Rabbanut, but certain benefits, especially in the medical space, aren't available to you. So they're issuing these like marriage ID cards that like you're able to bring to a hospital to still be able to make decisions for your spouse, even if you weren't married through the Rabbanut, and I thought it was such an interesting way to, again, circumvent um, a very insular system and to um, find a way to, again, make yeah. you know make it accessible that we should we can be able to get married however we want to. Right. Well, so can I throw out like it kind of like it's like a weird quirky fact. Always. So uh, the. <laughs> The, the city of Tel Aviv, because they are the ones who administer the civil side of marriage, actually issued a divorce for an LGBT couple before they've ever been able to issue a marriage because of how civil civil marriage does not exist in Israel. You either get married in a religious ceremony or you fly someplace else to get civilly married. Um, and so there was a couple who got married. I, I don't remember whether it was in America or Amsterdam or Cyprus or wherever. And they came back and the marriage did not work out and they got a divorce um, because their civil marriage outside the state of Israel was uh, recognized by the state. They then had to go through and issue the divorce. That's crazy. That, like like the, so int- many- the interesting intricacies of how you run a society with the religious system that Israel has. Preach. So Chase, we've had you for a while tonight, and I feel like we've had such an amazing and wide-reaching um, conversation, which um, we are so excited about. Um, is there anything that we haven't asked you or given you a platform to speak about that you'd like to share? Wow, you do know you basically just gave an open microphone to a rabbi. That's a problem. I might suggest you change that format for future guests. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> Let but me I also know your of, wife, so I could just text her and be like, you know, call him. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, she, she's been trying to call me. There we um, go. So one thing is maybe I'll take a, a minute to, like, teach a little, a little bit of Torah. I hadn't necessarily thought of doing that beforehand. Um, but a story that we spent a lot of time learning uh, in rabbinical school, I actually took, took it in a uh, Bible class that I had in a Tanakh class where we spent an entire three months of our semester, you know, learning about how to translate the uh, structure of daberba. So the Hebrew word daber means to like to speak or whatever with the prefix of a bet. And so we went and we concordance, we looked at every single instance where daberba exists in Tanakh so that we could then use all of the context of those many uh, locations to be able to figure out the use of Daberba in the story in which Moses marries a Cushite woman. And Aaron and Miriam, it says, Daberba Moshe, that they spoke Moshe. And they basically, we, we learn, we spend three months to learn how they spoke out against Moses. Um, there's plot, you know, not really much of a plot twister. There's all spoiler there. But they spoke out against Moses because Moses married this Cushite woman. And what happens in that story? Moses isn't shamed for marrying someone who isn't an Israelite. Moses isn't kicked out. Moses isn't removed from the community. Actually, God is the one who 
brings about, uh, it's not quite a leprosy, but whatever the, the issue is that you want to talk about, a white scaly thing with Miriam and Aaron. And it is Moses who is the one who goes to Miriam and Aaron. Remind you, Miriam and Aaron are the ones who were attacking Moses for his life choices. And it was Moses who's the one who went to God and said, please God, heal them, heal her in particular, and to bring about this moment of healing and to end that moment and to bring about the healing for their family and for their entire community. That for me, again, this idea of welcoming people of all different types and welcoming couples into the Jewish community is not new to us. Okay, anyone who can go and watch Fiddler on the Roof, and if you take a look at it critically, it's all there of marrying in her faith and leaving Judaism and all those types of ideas are there. That was 120 years ago that that was happening. The exact same situations are happening, and guess what? We're still here. We're still thriving. We are still an open, loving, caring community, at least in our best days and our best moments. And I don't see that changing anytime soon and excited that my rabbinate and my journey gets to be a part of helping to make sure that that happens and continues to happen for generations to come. The fact that you were able to just kind of throw that story out there right off the cuff, having us uh, not prepped you for that is one of the many reasons that I am so proud to have you as my rabbi, our dear friend, and thank you so much, Rabbi Chase Foster, for being our guest on How Do You Jew. For people who are interested in learning more about Chase's amazing work in um, Cleveland, um, you can check out jhubclee, that's J-H-U-B-C-L-E dot org. Um, and if you message me privately, I'll give you his private contact info as well. But Chase, thank you so much for being here um, and for sharing your wisdom with us. You were amazing, of course. Chase. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank I adore you. you guys and appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Have a good night. Bye. So again, we just want to say thank you to Chase and Samantha. Why don't you uh, remind our listeners of where to find us? All right. So thank you again for listening to another episode of How Do You Jew? Don't forget to subscribe to How Do You Jew in Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find us and spread the How Do You Jew word. And we would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at How Do You Jew Pod. Check out our website at HowDoYouJewPod.com or email us your thoughts, episode ideas, and all things Jewy at HowDoYouJewPod at gmail.com. All of those things are H-O-W-D-O-Y-O-U-J-E-W-P-O-D. And we look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, happy Jewing! <laughs> <laughs>